Let me begin with a question this morning. Have you ever considered, have you ever considered the degree of diligence that is required of us to be on guard against the things that work against us? While you're sitting here today, there are important things and less important things and everything in between that is working against you. What are some of those things that are happening right now? Well, if you own a home, let's just start with maybe the less important and work up to the most important. If you, if you own a home, if you have any outside paint on your home, it serves as a barrier against environmental conditions. And what you will notice is these environmental conditions eventually deteriorate what has been painted. It, it'll work on the paint, and so you have to paint again and again. And if you don't, you're in trouble. <laughs> Rot and deterioration will take place. It's working against you right now while you're sitting here, very quietly, very slowly. Or let's say you have a garden. Maybe you're planting gardens for vegetables, flowers, whatever it may be. You leave them unattended, what's going to happen? They are going to be overtaken by weeds. And it will be a constant diligence. You will walk out and you will see another one spring up and another one and another one. And it will be all summer long like that. Every bridge, once constructed, begins to weaken under environmental conditions and fatigue. They must be regularly inspected. Do you know while we're sitting here, it's slow, it's gradual, but every bridge that's been constructed is deteriorating. And friends, in the United States, we have many bridges that are in trouble. All you've got to do is get on the Internet. and just If you want to really get a downer, get on the Internet and check out some of the, the, the grades that they give some of the bridges in our country. They're deteriorating. Or let's say you have some treasured pictures your uh, relatives have handed down pictures and you want to keep them and that sort of thing. Or, or maybe important documents. If they are not properly preserved, they can eventually decay and be lost. Why? Because there's just something working against them. Also, someone will try and steal your personal information. Say your social security number. Do you know that right now there are people working against you trying to get your information? And you know how often it happens? Every two seconds. Every two seconds, another identity has been stolen. Now, we work from the least up to the most important, and so let me give you what may be the most important. The world, the world is hacking into your child or your grandchild heart every day through various streams. The world is hacking into the heart of your child, your grandchild every day. And the world is far more successful than we would ever want to admit. What do I mean by the world? You'll see a definition in the overhead today. The world, by the world, the Bible is speaking of mankind organized in rebellion against God. Life lived in alienation from God and in opposition to his commandments. You, your children, your grandchildren, we all live in a world 
that is in rebellion against God. Mankind. Alienated from God. Now you might be here and you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. I hope that's the case for everyone. If you are, you are living against the headwinds of the world. You are breathing the air of the world. You are swimming in the waters of the world. The world is hacking into the heart of your child and grandchild. In fact, in your heart every day through various streams. But what does the Bible mean by heart? Well, you'll see a definition. By heart, the Bible means this. First, our mind, our thoughts, plans, judgments, and discernment. Also, the heart is the will, our choices and our actions. Thirdly, our affections, longings, desires, our revulsion. In other words, the things that make us sick and we revolt, we turn against, our imagination, our feelings. And then the heart includes the conscience, our sense of right and wrong, which approves or condemns the mind, will, and affections. Let's stop there. Your heart is a valuable treasure. That's why the Bible tells us, guard your heart. Be, be diligent and guard your heart because out of it, all of the issues of life flow. So let's back up for a moment. Your mom, your dad, your grandparent, the world is hacking in to your child or your grandchild's heart every day through various streams. And you see, I'm not going to dispute this. You know we love our children and we love our grandchildren. Children can alter your life. Uh, somebody put it this way. Nothing changes a man or a woman's outlook on life than having a child. You'll see a picture of a man who had a child, Ron Wood. Ron Wood's a guitarist, one of the guitarists for the Rolling Stones. And, of course, in this picture, I picked this picture because he's smoking. Okay? See, it's cool to smoke. It, it's, it's even cooler to smoke when you're playing an instrument. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I remember when I was young, you know, you, you put that cigarette down on the end of the you put it in between the string right there, and, and, it, and it just, while you're playing, it's just smoke's just whiffing in there. And then during between songs, you can reach over and take a drag off. Oh, it is so cool. <laughs> it's so cool until you get cancer. And that's what happened to Ron Wood. That's what happened to Ron Wood. And he's, he's been able to live through it. But he quit smoking. Now listen, not because of the cancer. No. It's because of this next picture. These two little girls. He had twin babies. When those twin babies came, he quit smoking. See, nothing can impact your life like having a child. It just changes it. It changes your outlook, you see. Or the next lady you'll see a picture of is Cheryl Crow. For years, Cheryl Crow, and still does, she travels and sings. She's a pretty, pretty hot artist, you know, over the years. And she's written a lot of her songs. And a lot of them have, have had to do with a high level of, of, of sexuality. But now when she had her children, when she had her children, here's what she said in an interview. I don't like my children hearing those songs about sex. It's interesting. When she didn't have children, <laughs> it didn't mind, didn't mind singing the songs about sex that your children heard. <laughs> but when she had children, it all turned around, didn't it? Yeah. Now notice, Ron Wood, Cheryl Crow, neither one of them are believers, but they love their children. Children come into their lives, and their perspective has changed. But I'm speaking to believers today. My, my, my task is to speak to you, the church, 
It's Christians. And I, well, here's what I want to do over the next few minutes. I, want, I hope to challenge you from the Word of God. I hope to challenge you. I hope to equip you. Challenge you, equip you, but not crush you. Okay? Challenge you and equip you, but not crush you. Now, you, you may be already thinking, well, look, I, my kids are up and grown. Or, you know, or, or hey, you know, I, I've, I've got little grandchildren. Listen, listen. There's something here. There's something here for everyone. Trust me. But I'm speaking primarily to Christian parents and grandparents. And so hopefully to encourage you and to equip you. So we start with this. The first thing we need to do is we need to recognize that some strategy is necessary in bringing up children in a secularized world. Secularized world is a world that is ever increasing. No God, no Bible. We don't want anything, anything to do with that. Out, 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 out. That's a more secularized society. That's the culture that you are bringing up your children in or your grandchildren are growing up in. Again, against the headwinds of secularism. So some strategy, right? Doesn't it make sense? Got to have a strategy. And so largely in part, that's what we're talking about, that some sort of a strategy. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, if you back up to chapter 5, you'll remember over the last few weeks we've been talking about marriage. Because chapter 5 deals in large part about Christian marriage. But when you get into chapter 6, it deals with Christian family, parents raising children, children obeying their parents. And so what you should see, I just want to mention this real quick, what you should see is order. Because God is a God of order. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And we should be thankful for a God of order. For example, when you pull up to the next four-way stop, look up and say, God, I thank you that you are a God of order. Because in a four-way stop, there's got to be order. There's traffic rules. Everybody can't go at the same time, right? Thank God for order. Or when you're standing in the cafeteria, you know, you stand in the cafeteria waiting to get served, and, or it's your turn for something, thank God for order that somebody is not jumping in front of the line and it's just absolute chaos. Thank God for order. Children, thank God for order. Parents, thank God for a God of order. Uh, now, here's what we find in chapter 6. Responsibility of parents to bring up their children. In, the, in these four verses, there's a lot to cover, but my, my plan today is verse 4b. 4b, the last part of verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two words are used, discipline and instruction. Discipline refers to deeds. Instruction refers to words. Both are used in bringing up. That phrase, bring up, by the way, refers to like a tree, a young sapling. Put it in the ground, and you want to make sure it grows strong and straight. And so you give attention to it by staking it down, feeding it, nurturing it, taking care of it. You're, what are you doing? You're bringing it up, you see. And so we are instructed to bring them up in the instruction and the discipline. Let's take discipline first. The discipline of deeds. Now listen to me closely, mom, dad, grandparents, whoever's helping in the influence of children. This will include the obligation of moms and dads for disciplining their children to do certain things and to refrain from certain things. Okay? You get that. As a parent, okay, 
you, you will discipline them to do. You, you need to do these things. You need to do these. Also, you need to refrain from these things. Now, maybe we're pretty good at that or maybe we're not. I don't know. But the, 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 the big thing I want you to see here is this. This applies to us as well. This applies to us as parents. Before we ever start exercising the discipline of deeds, we need to think about the discipline of our deeds. For example, last week I mentioned, I I listen to a podcast every week called Everyone's Agnostic. It is not spiritually upbuilding, but it is very informative. And it helps me learn some things that I want to help you and I to avoid. It's a podcast where men and women are interviewed who used to profess Christ. They, they grew up in the church, like, like say your kids or you, you grew up in the church. And, and on this podcast, they're being interviewed because they have deconverted. They no longer profess Christianity. In fact, most of them no longer believe that there's a God. They believe it's all hogwash. And as I've listened over the months... There's a question that keeps coming up to these people. It's this. It's, well, tell me about your parents. Were they committed believers? The majority of the time, here's the answer. No, my parents at best were nominal Christians. Nominal means Christian in name only. In other words, if you go out this week, just just do a test if you want to. I I just wonder, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course I am. Of course I am. I live in America. Of course I'm a Christian. Nominal Christianity means no reality, no conviction. Christ is not central. It may involve church attendance. It may involve a high level of morality. But there's no reality. There's there's a profession of godliness with no power, no restraint, no conviction. And most importantly, Christ is not central. And these children, these teens were watching. And what they saw in their parents was nominal at best. There's no reality, no no real devotion to Christ and to his church. For some of them, they had their children and they found it important to bring them to church and have them in, in the environment of the church, at least while they were young. You know, I've had people stop here at the church, come in the lobby, and they say, could, could you tell me what, what goes on here for children? And I explain to them, and then they'll, I'll, I'll say, why? Why do you want to know this? And they say, well, you know, I grew up in the church, and it was really important to me when I was four and five, six, seven. It was really important for me to be in church. And I said, well, are you in church now? No. No, I'm not. It's been, it's been years since I've been in church. But I want my boy, I want my girl, I want them to have the influence like I had. I want them to have that experience like I had. And what that often means is I want them here when they're little. But when they finally get to a place where it's no longer interesting to them, it's certainly not interesting to me, I just want to have them here for that time. Then they disengage and they go on with their life. Now, now, what does all this mean? Let me put it in the form of a question. Are you watchworthy. You're being watched. If you're a parent and even a grandparent, you're being watched. Are you watchworthy? Here's why this is important. Every day as a believer, you are becoming 
either more like Christ or less like him. It's happening. It, like, like the paint, <laughs> like the paint on your house. See, something's going, there, there's something coming against it, and you have to be vigilant. So you're either, you're either becoming more like Christ or less like Christ. So as a parent or a grandparent, let me ask you this question. Which direction are you headed in? More like Christ, less like Christ. And I ask you this seriously because your children, your grandchildren are watching you. And whichever direction you're going in, that is likely the direction they are going in. They are watching you. You say, what are they looking for, preacher? They're looking to see where your hope lies. Hope's important. We read this morning at the beginning, the psalmist said, you know, soul, put your hope in God. Hope is important because it involves the heart's expectations. Children are looking to see where is your hope? Where is it really? They want to see if God's mercy has changed your life. Because if you say that you're a Christian, That means that you've had a connection with God's grace and his mercy. And God's grace and mercy is designed, it's calculated to change your life. You will not be the same person. Your children, when they hear you talk about these things, they want to see if God's mercy has changed your life. They want to see how you deal with disappointment. They want to see, is Christ really sufficient for you or not. Because if you ever hope to make an impact upon your children and your grandchildren, Christ must be sufficient for you. So, are you watchworthy? If you say, I don't know what, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're not sure how to answer that right now. Well, then I, I want to help equip you. How do I become watchworthy? Number one, Christ must be central to you. None of this playing around. None of this divided heart. One day they look at you and they're like, what in the world? Because that doesn't match up at all with what they said last week. Christ has to be central. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean that you're going to never be a time that you'll have to say to your daughter or your son, I'm sorry, forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have behaved this way. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean that you are daily learning to trust and obey Christ in all things. It doesn't happen all in one week. It's daily, daily, consistently looking to Christ, trusting and obeying him. Thirdly, you are developing godly habits. For example, if, you, if your children see you serving God's people, they see you consistently serving God's people, loving God's people, caring for God's people. Why? Because they're God's people. They're part of the family of God. They're your brother and sister in Christ. They're not somebody to be run down, chastised in front of your children. Never, never, never ride home talking about, oh, so-and-so in the church and -and so-and-so in the church. You are teaching them a bad thing. Show them service to others. Why is that important? Because you don't want another generation of people who drive here, come and sit down, and can't wait to get back to their car. Won't even talk to anybody. We don't need another generation of that. We need people who serve Christ and his people. They've got to see that modeled in mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. They need to see the godly habit of evangelism. 
we're supposed to be telling others the hope that we have in Christ. They they need to know that you deeply care about getting the gospel out to friends and family and to the world. They, They need to see that. They need to know that that's happening with you. They need to see your generosity. The reason, one of the major reasons why that I ever began giving, I have multiple reasons now, but one of the main primary reasons that it all began was because I saw my dad write a check every week to the church. And that made, at that time when I was, I didn't know that it was going to have the lasting impression. But when I first became a Christian, the first thing I thought of is I got to give. Why? Because my dad was a believer and he gave. He modeled it. They need to know that you are being generous with what God has provided for you. Are you using it all on yourself and your family? Shame, shame. We need to be generous with what we have. And give unto the Lord. These are godly habits. These are just some. Self-reflection, character formation. It could go on and on. These are godly habits that we need to build into our lives so that we will become watchworthy. Now, listen. uh, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. If you're sitting here going, okay, I got it, I got it. Look, this is going to require effort and vigilance setting aside the necessary time to do this. Your life may be so packed that you're wondering right now, how can I do, how can I get this in? You're going to have to sit down with your spouse and say, look, we're going to get our life organized because it's, it's a mess. <laughs> if we don't have time to come and worship regularly, we don't have time to be a model for our children, then, we, then, then our life is, is, is off the charts. We've got to get things back where they need to be. And if you do that, you will be a model and you'll be in a better position to bring up your children in the discipline of the Lord. Discipline. Secondly, the instruction of words. In addition to your child seeing your life, seeing the goodness and the sufficiency and the trustworthiness of your faithful Savior, there must be words. You must speak. You, you must be talking. I couldn't tell you how many times over these past 24 years where there's been a situation where a person has become terminal. And I would visit the person. I'd say, look, uh, things are beginning to wind down. And the, par- the, 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 the spouse and the children are saying to me, look, we just, we just like to know if, if their heart is right with Jesus. And I'm like, have they talked to you about, have y'all talked about this? Oh no, oh no. And so I'd sit down with the husband or the wife and say, look, is Jesus central to you? Are you going to die in faith or outside of faith? Which one is it? And they might say, well, yeah, you know, I'm right with, everything's okay, preacher. Look, then you need to tell your family. You need to communicate because they don't know. They don't know. You need to be talking. Time's running out. You need to be talking. You need to communicate. You need to instruct. You need to let them know where your hope's at. Let them know that you're going to die in faith. If that's not real, then let's talk, okay? If that's not real for you, let's talk before it's too late. But if it's real, tell your children, tell your spouse, let them know my hope is in Jesus. I'm ready to meet my Savior. 
I said all that to say this. Human words are good, and we're going to have to use those. But what I'd like to talk to you primarily about is particularly God's Word. I'm not going to mention any names, but there's a dear brother here I had a conversation with about three months ago, and he told me, and it was refreshing. He said, you know, each night my 10-year-old son comes and says, let's read the Bible together. And they've been reading the Bible together every night. And I thought, how wonderful. Hang on to that as long as you can. (laughs) Hang on to that as long as you can. And he talked about the time they had together, just, just that time for them alone to read the Word of God together. You see, I think without a doubt that you, if you're here this morning, you want your child to come to faith in Christ, right? I mean, if Christ is central to you, you want Christ to be central to them, right? But you can't force that, can you? You can't force that. You shouldn't force that. And so you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute." I want them to come to faith in Christ. I want Christ to be central in their heart, but I can't force them. So, preacher, what am I supposed to do? You can create the necessary conditions for faith to ignite. Now, listen to me carefully. You as a parent can create the necessary conditions for faith to ignite. I want you to see a verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith, saving faith, faith comes from hearing. So faith comes. Can't force it. We can't force it, but it can come. Faith comes from hearing, specifically, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, when it says faith comes by hearing, that doesn't mean the mere sense of hearing. Because if it did, you know, you could just go, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put Bible on CD. I'm going to slap some headphones on my little baby's ears and just going to hear the word all night long, you see. No, that's, that's not, that's not a plan. That's not a good plan. Nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't, it doesn't create faith. Okay. What, what the scripture is talking about here is this. It's receiving what is heard. They got to hear it. They, they, they must hear it, but they must receive it, but you can't force it. That's when we must look to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who ignites faith and will say, what you're hearing is true. I remember that. I remember as an unpersuaded person that, that something outside of me saying, this is real. This is true. Sell everything and have this. <laughs> I remember that. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But see, we've got to start with, we have to start with as parents giving this instruction. The word of God, because faith, saving faith, comes from hearing the word of Christ. So let's be specific here for just a moment. Now listen, listen to me very carefully. This is really important. What you said, what well, what should what should I focus on? Let me let me give you a few things to focus on as a parent as far as instruction from the word. First thing, teach them about the God of the Bible. Introduce them to the God of the Bible. Now Here's what we don't need. Don't, don't be content. Don't be a parent that's content with, I just want my child to believe in God. That's all I want. Friends, most of the time that will never work. You know why? Pew Research uh, put out some findings just a couple of weeks ago asking Christians, 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 and the public 
if they believe in God. And oh my goodness, oh, 90-something percent, we believe in God. But then they begin to go deeper. What God do you believe in? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Whoop, no, no. I believe, I prefer more a higher power or a, they called it a spiritual force. Friend, higher power and spiritual force is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who created everything. He's the creator God. He's the one true God. He's not a mere higher power, spiritual force. That's degrading of God. So teach them about the God of the Bible. Don't be content if your child just comes along and says, Oh, yeah, Mom, I believe in God. Go deeper. What God do you believe in? What God are you cozying up to? Is it the God of the Bible or is it a higher power? Number two, teach them this. By all means, teach them this. Teach them that it's right for God to seek his own glory. Now you say, what is the big deal about that? I have a file in my office on the glory of God. And in that file, I find names like persons like Oprah Winfrey, Brad Pitt. The list could go on and on of people, listen, Oprah, Brad Pitt, others, many others, they were raised in church. They were raised in church. Fundamentally sound biblical churches, not some radical off the chart. Healthy churches. They were raised there. But they've heard, they heard things like God is a jealous God. And God wants us to worship him first. He, he, he demands that we worship him. He's jealous. And Oprah said, I heard that. I thought, I'm not worshiping no God like that. God I worship is no jealous God. Begin to ask questions like this. Why does God insist that we worship him? Is, is he insecure? He, he's, is he egotistical? Is that, does it, that, that sounds kind of crazy in our world. One true God? Worship him? Put him first? <laughs> and so Brad Pitt said, no way. I'm not interested in that. That... That doesn't fit with the world, to see. Teach your son and daughter and your grandchildren. God demands our worship not because he's needy, not because he's needy. He's a God sitting up there going, I, I need your worship. No, teach them that he is not needy, that he is self-sufficient. He's the God of this universe. We need him but he's not needy. Teach them that if we don't worship him and give him glory and praise, we detach ourselves from ultimate reality. If you say, look, I'm not, I'm not maybe there's God, maybe there's not, but I'm just going to do my thing. You've just unplugged from ultimate reality. You don't even know what ultimate reality is. And if you do not worship God and give him the glory that is due, it ends up harming you. Do you see that? It leaves you depleted. You'll have to live off the fumes of this world. So for our own good, for our own joy, God says, worship me, put me first. It's not because he's egotistical. It's because he is for himself first before he can ever be for you and me. But be sure he's for you because he's for himself. 
Teach your children that it's right that God get the glory that he deserves. Teach them next. Teach them the fear of the Lord. You'll see on the overhead a good definition by John Murray of the fear of God. It means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension. And life is characterized by the all-pervasive consciousness of dependence upon him and responsibility to him. That is fearing God. Fearing God is not you beating the snot out of your kids and and warning God's going to get you, God's going to get you. No, no, no. That's not the fear of God. Fear of God, he's the center. He, He has everything to do with our whole life. Bow to that. Worship that. One other thing. Teach them how to be reconciled to the God of the Bible. In other words, saturate your child with the gospel. And you better because they, they are wired for moralism. They're wired to think, I'll just be good. I'll be good. I'll be gooder. I'll be real good. I'll be okay. Listen, that is not the gospel. You've got to lay into this. Mom, dad, grandparents, you've got to lay into this regularly, systematically, carefully, gently, kindly. The gospel is that God has broken into history and accomplished everything necessary for our salvation by sending his son Jesus to atone for our sins. We're not atoning for our sins. Trying to be morally good enough. Teach them that Christ has come. He's sufficient. He's done it all. To put our hope in Christ to reconcile us to this wonderful God. And you got to do that regularly. Mom and dad, you got to be faithful and consistent to do that because they're wired for moralism. They're wired to think, I'll be good enough. I'll be good enough. This, let me hit on this real quick and we'll move on. Your children are growing up in a world where they will face challenges to their faith. What does that mean? They will have questions. They will have questions. It can't help but happen. Because as you diligently lay into this, they're going against the headwinds of the world, see, which is anti-God. That's the fumes, like bus fumes, just blowing on them constantly. And so naturally, when they're out there, they're going to have questions. So here, here's what advice. Make it easy for them to bring questions to you. Make it easy. They've got them. They've got them. Don't act like a know-it-all. Don't, don't, don't minimize. Don't put down. Make it easy. I, I read where one person said this. What we do is we have, once a month, we have what's called a question night. We cook up a big dinner, some of the favorite things that the kids like. It's called question night. Tonight, you can ask your questions about God, about the Bible. Don't pretend to be a know-it-all. There's a lot we don't know. There are many trustworthy resources available. Go looking. Go hunting. And if you don't know the answer, just be honest. I mean, humility, that'd be a great time to practice humility. I don't know. I don't know, but we'll find out. So make it easy. Make it easy for them to bring their questions. They're going to have them. Now, let me wrap it up this way. I said my hopes are today to be challenging and equipping but not to crush. See, on Mother's Day and Father's Day, sometimes it can... Yeah, I'll be honest with you, I dread Mother's and Father's Day. Not because of... It's a secular holiday, folks. There's nothing in the Bible that calls upon us to have Mother's Day and Father's Day. It didn't come from the Bible, okay? It, it, it's a secular holiday. And so 
when that when it comes, the tendency, you know, the tendency is, oh, it's Mother's Day, got to rag on mothers for a while, <laughs> you know. And sometimes mothers and fathers, they hear that and they're like, oh, it feels so heavy, it's just crushing. See, right now, you may, you may feel like a failure, right now. After what you've heard, you may be going, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. Boy, if I could just back up. But, but listen, wait, wait. If you had been a perfect parent, now let's just take that for a moment. If you had been a perfect parent, you weren't, I wasn't. If you had been a perfect parent, do you know that you could not have created faith in your child's heart, no matter how hard you tried, even if you were a perfect parent? How do we know that? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Even the most perfect parent had rebels. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Friend, God's the most perfect parent that there ever was. And his children there, when it says children, I was talking about the people of Israel. And you go back and read all that God did for these people, all that he provided, all this nurturing and loving and parenting and instruction and all that came with it. In spite of that, they rebelled. So here's what I would say to you if you feel like a failure right now. Number one, stop despairing. Number one, stop. Just stop despairing and just listen to this. Stop despairing and repent of what needs repenting and move forward. Okay? Stop despairing. Stop wringing your hands. Stop. But do this. Repent. Stop. Stop the way that you've been going and turn. Turn and do this. Take up the task that has always been yours. You see, you, you might have wanted to kind of shift it off to somebody else. Well, it's the church. It's the children's ministry. It's the youth group. All these things, all these things can be supportive, but they're not primary. Mom and dad, you are primary. You are with them more than your Sunday school or their Sunday school teacher or their children's church teacher. You are, you are with them. They see you. You are the model. You are the mom. You are the dad. Take up the task that has always been yours and teach the faith to your children and show them your faith. Make the necessary sacrifices that will show them that you would rather have Jesus than the world. Let them see that. Let them know that. My mom, my dad, Jesus is central to them. Finally, you might be here today and you say, well, my son, my daughter has already flew the coop. And they're out from under my roof. And I don't know, preacher, I don't know what's going to happen to them. Maybe you, maybe you believe, maybe you've been persuaded that all hope's gone because they're out from underneath your influence. Listen, don't believe because your son or your daughter has turned 18 and moved out that somehow they've been altered to such a degree, degree that they cannot be overtaken by the miracle of faith. It's a miracle. The fact that I'm here today, a convert of Christ, is a miracle. It's not because I was raised in church. That was, that was good. That, that, that helped set the conditions for me to hear the word of God. But it's a miracle. New birth is a miracle. It's a miracle from above. So don't, you couldn't do it. God can so don't think just because they are grown now, they're out of the house, they're out from underneath your roof, that somehow the miracle of faith can't take. Don't believe that. Why? Because you are co-laboring for your child with God. You are co-laboring. Some, someone left the 9 a.m. service and said, I did not know that. 
I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're co-laborers with God. So, so don't despair. You are co-laboring with the God who is mighty to save. You can't, but he can. Let me close with this. I had lunch with a man a little over a year ago. Met him one time, haven't seen him since. But he said something to me that really helped me. And maybe it'll help some of you who are my age or older. We're sitting across from one another, and he, again, I have never met this man before, and all of a sudden he just kind of gets in my life. He says, Ben, how old are you? Now, if I'd have been a woman, I'd say, that's none of your business. But since I'm a man, I said, well, I'm 61. I was 61 at that time. And uh, he said, ah, the 60s, 60s. He said, the 60s are going to be your years of influence. Huh. You know, we often think, you know, well, I'm in my 40s and this. In my 50s, my 60s is going to be retirement and kind of slowing down and doing whatever. He said, listen, in your 60s, those are years of influence. He said, you're going to be able to pour into your grandchildren. You're going to be able to pour into those that you love. There's a lot of things you can't do when you, when you were 30 and 40 now that you're 60. Things have changed. But these are the years of influence. And I thought, man... That's what I want. I want to be influential to the ones I love, to this congregation, to this community. Influential for Christ. Let people know Christ is central to me. I want him to be central to you. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to love Jesus and love his people. Live for his glory. It's the only glory worth living for. Live for him. And enjoy the joy that it brings. You're co-laboring. You're co-laboring with a God who's mighty to save. Go to work.